Well, howdy, y'all. Our partners at Cosmetic are a longtime sponsor of this show. Cosmetic makes topical CBD products like tattoo balm and CBD-infused pain cream. Each unit of Cosmetic Hemp Pain Cream ships packed with 400 milligrams of their water-soluble patented CBD solution. Not only does Cosmetic's hemp-infused pain cream reduce pain via muscular penetration, it also aids in long-term healing of the targeted muscle area. Be kind to your skin and your muscles and go to Cosmedicated.com, that's C-A-U-S-E Medicated.com, and place an order. Use the promo code from this podcast, SOS20, and get 20% off of your entire order. All right, podcast time. Welcome in, guys. How we doing? Hope everybody's healthy and happy and all that. I've got John Worley on the show today. You may know him as Cornbread. That's a different cornbread than the uh, infamous small-time con man and thief that uh, has terrorized East Knoxville and Fourth and Gill for years. Different guy. This Cornbread, John Worley, is a musician. Uh, cornbread Blues Band. They're amazing. You should check them out. Uh, if it sounds a, a little different for this intro, it's uh, because I'm sitting in uh, Vandora. Uh, that's our uh, family VW bus camper deal uh, that you see recreated on the album artwork for this podcast. Uh, Sarah and I took Vandora down to Polly's Island, South Carolina on a kid-free trip. Just us down here, and uh, it's great. We're having a blast. And uh, Vandora was the quietest place to record here at our uh, Airbnb. So here we are. All right, so John Worley came by the shop earlier this week, and we talked about a lot. It was a colorful chat, to say the least. Uh, we talked a lot about East Tennessee culture and uh, the social implications of the TVA. Uh, we uh, John, John even got to preach the hillbilly gospel a little bit. <laughs> it was great. Um, and uh, we, don't always, we don't always cry here on South of Scruffy Podcast, but a, a tear or two was shed today, and uh, I don't even know what happened. We just Once we pressed go, it just kind of went. And I've always, I've always really in loved. I've always really loved talking to John and hearing his unique perspective that will, you know, at the very least, make you think really hard. Right before we got started, uh, John uh, smudged me uh, with some sage. I have a small little smudge stick of sage that sits here in the seashell by my microphones, and uh, John is the first person to ever pick it up and start the ritual. Uh, but it was very cleansing, and we needed it. And uh, that's we should have known then uh, it was going to be a wild ride. Uh, we sat down uh, for a talk that kind of undulated uh, through all kinds of crazy topics. Might I say we meandered. Uh, but we, we landed on John's music career with Cornbread Blues Band and also his new talent buying outfit, uh, Mad Monk Entertainment, uh, which also acts as a resource for musicians trying to keep working safely through the COVID-19 era. It's a cool deal that he's doing with Mad Monk. And you guys should check all that out after this is over and done with. Last thing, I just got a, another shipment of South of Scruffy coffee mugs. Uh, they always go fast, so if you want one for you or loved one or friend, let me know. Uh, southofscruffy.com, southofscruffy at gmail.com, or at southofscruffy on Instagram, and we'll get one in your hand. All right, let's do the show. Ladies and gentlemen, John Worley, Cornbread. We're doing the podcast. <laughs> Okay, what you do is you get a compression scheme and put on the audio. 
okay, which is going to bring the sound of the crickets up to the same level as uh, the talking, right? Gotcha. To what compression does. Yeah, it compresses the sound wave. And then the- what we do is you throw flanger and reverb and, like, phaser and, like, fucking an auto wah and just pile it on there for, like, I don't know, like five seconds to the point where everybody out there that's listening goes, oh, my God, am I tripping? And the minute you do that, you go right back like normal, like nothing ever happened. <laughs> and you just keep rolling with the interview, you know? Like, you know, like I say something crazy and mystical and just like fucking really deep. And then you just go with the crickets, yeah. right? And then we just drop back in. Well, yeah, you know, really, that's kind of cool, you know? <laughs> Seriously, it'll be awesome. I like it. I think Sam will, Sam will hear that and he'll take a note. Oh, it's producer in there. Yeah. You know he, what knows, I mean? he knows his stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So he'll know what you're talking about. Yeah. It's like, you know, it's, it's a, a fucking show, show man. Everything is a show. It's not a show that you don't understand what's going on. It's a fucking show. Everything. I believe it. Oh, totally. I'm all about that. It's like the bag. It's like the bag theory. What's that? Everybody's got a bag. What, what, what kind of bag? That's the bag that's your bag that you fucking do, you know? But see, your bag is inside of somebody else's bag. And that's the thing. I see what you're saying. Every bag is within a bag, within a bag, within a great big bag. <laughs> I love it. Dude. Yeah, man. How you doing? Fucking hey, my assholes and elbows, dude. Yeah. I used monkey butt cream last week. <laughs> you got that bad? Oh, God. <laughs> I was like, what is that? And I went, oh, I know what that feeling is. That's work. <laughs> oh, that's ass chap right there. <laughs> That's ass chap. Like seriously, my elbow. I think I got I got sunburn on the back of my elbow. How do you do that? You fucking dig a hole, bro. <laughs> dig a hole. Dig a great big hole yeah. that takes you so long to dig that you were in the sun long enough for your elbows to get sunburned. Pointing straight up. Oh man. So, well, why were you digging a hole? Well, I, I, I the simple answer is we we're making a stage. Okay. Okay. The long answer is like. It's some sort of weird, I don't know, like Buddhist pagoda. I don't know, man. It's a fat mattress that uh, all these uh, creative kids can bounce on. I like it. Yeah, man. Yeah, man. 1,100 pounds in that son of a bitch. In, Ooh, of in, concrete. Of concrete in the stage? Oh, yeah. What'd you build it for? Where at? Uh, it's down at the brickyard. Down okay. at the brickyard. Uh, I got real bad in my head, man, during, yeah. during this coronavirus shit, man. Yeah. And I picked a really shit fucking year to quit drinking oh yeah i'd say so you know <laughs> well you know no it's fine yeah i'm good you know i mean when i quit drinking i was able to uh you know because i saw it as a spiritual thing yeah and you know well i think once you quit commit to something on a spiritual level it no longer becomes a behavioral problem yeah you know yeah so i bet that was hard man because you went pretty hard for a bunch of years didn't you Oh, man, I made a fucking living for 17 years being an abstract caricature of a bipolar, uh, you know, intellectual hillbilly, you know, tramping about the country. So was that uh, the catalyst for it? Was alcohol the catalyst for the abstract? I think in a lot of ways, you know, people project upon you their concepts Uh and a lot of times people will look at you and what you're doing and in order for it to make sense to them 
they have to have kind of a written in excuse. Like, they got to quantify it. Well, and, and or qualify rel- it rather. qualified and justified. Yeah. And so if you meet somebody that's really poor, has no resources, way less money than you, and they're wearing it out and throwing down with their PV pawn shop shit, you know, and uh, I think people want to say, oh, well, look at that kid. He's just fucking drunk, man. That's what's going on. So, so that's what you were doing is 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 running small pawn shop stuff to make music? And, oh, yeah, man. Yeah. I mean, like literally <clears throat> on, out of the last 17 years, I've played on average over 230 shows a oh, year. Wow. For how many years? For about 17 years. Oh, man. Now that's keeping that's... in mind that that bipolarism took away about four of those years straight, hmm. where I was probably, you know, eating peanut butter with my finger and my BBDs, pawning some Japanese kid on an MMO. What's an MMO? Massive multiplayer online games. So you're you're selling stuff no well i'd ended up but yeah. yeah no i would play these online games like star trek online yeah you know all these big open world social games because when my horrible phobias and my mental illness would get me so bad that i was confined to the house uh mm-hmm. and i couldn't mentally bring myself to go into public because of the mental illness i would use these games as a means to find human connection because I, I would mm. always use voiceover communication, TCIP, you know, like a discord, something yeah, like yeah. that, or team speak. There's and a I, way to talk to them while you're oh, playing. Oh yeah, man. Yeah. And, so, and that was your connection with people. Oh my God. I developed some of the most beautiful, interesting, interpersonal connections with mm. people all the fuck over the world. Yeah. Which also, you know, ironically, connecting to the world is what you're trying to avoid when you go into those spells. But it's always into bipolar. Yeah, spells. but it always ended up being a lifeline because I could always uh, have a human connection mm. that trusted yeah. me and accepted me, and I could be myself with. Do you get but, tired of people you knew, or tired of people you know the people that knew you, or had a had a an idea about who you are puts you in a box. And then when you got to make all of these anonymous relationships, it was freeing. Is that kind of the Oh, my the God, it was liberating. Well, I mean, you have to understand, I'm from Morristown, Tennessee, okay? I grew up in some of the poorest school systems per capita in the country, mm. uh, in one of the most highly polluted areas in the country, actually in the world. Air pollution, water uh, pollution? Yeah, it, Hamlet County was number four back in the mid 90s uh most polluted by square mile hmm. we were worse than you know the rust belt you know i mean what I gr- was it from manufacturing uh okay try and try and give you the abridged version of this but basically the tba turned appalachia into the for the time, the base of the military industrial complex. You're talking about New Deal era? Well, post Post New New Deal. Deal. Basically, the New Deal set up the infrastructure so that by the time World War II happened, uh, they had a good idea of where they wanted to produce the materials Mm. for war. 
uh, and, and the, the infrastructure and, was there because TVA built a bunch exactly, of dams. Exactly, yeah. and so they just kind of swooped in here, and then TVA got to working on the hillbilly oh. population, socially engineering us to basically become the perfect workforce for that military-industrial complex. And let me give you an example. Here's where we are in Knoxville, right here, right now. Now we're okay. in South Knoxville, right? Yeah. So the closest TVA installation would have been Alcoa, which is located next to the largest bauxite deposits in the world, uh, making the majority of the aluminum for every plane and ship that was in World War II. Now, if we are to travel further uh, east, Steel South, mm-hmm. We're going to hit Inkawai BASF, which is where they invented nylon, which, of course, kept us alive during World War II. Inca was in, was that in Jefferson City or Morristown? That was in Morristown. Okay. I I remember, are they still around? uh, No, it is about four Superfund cleanup sites deep over there now. They had to shut it down. Yeah, I I remember when I was living in, in... up that way in Talbot for a couple that, of years. That neon green haze. Yeah. Yeah, that was Inca. It was still open, though, when I was up there. Yeah. 05 they, or so. Yeah, they closed it down about six years ago. Did they? Uh, but that yeah. was, was that textiles? Oh, no, they did everything. It was basically Old Man DuPont and 3M's uh, stage testing facility for product development. So they invented Teflon there, nylon there, like all the big... Uh, because they wanted to have a lab that was close to ORNL. So they could serve them? Yes. I mean, everything was dictated by the DOD. And so what happened? They they come into these, to use your term, hillbilly towns with these hillbilly workforces, and then they just beat them up for for all the resources they've got, and then the the landscape be damned? It was very systemic. Uh, you had to not only create the workforce, but you had to get the workforce to believe that the land and the culture that they were sacrificing was worth the payoff. And there's two ways of doing that. You can do that through actually doing that and giving somebody a better culture, mm-hmm. or you can just mentally ninja monkey mind fucks, you know, rape them and socially engineer them into believing that their heritage was so worthless that it that it didn't matter hmm. uh, and you know like they're fucking, giving you a better oh, life dude like fucking beverly hillbillies tva paid fifty thousand dollars a, a month 150 dollars a quarter to have fifty thousand a quarter to get one of their social engineers in the writing room well what at beverly hillbillies yeah because they wanted the people, tv show yeah the because yeah. All of it. The whole yeah. concept was fucking a TVA fucking. I, I don't want to. I don't want to put a tenfold fucking hat on here. Right. But here's the deal. You know, I believe that they wanted us to be perceived as just these dumbass, you know, yokel, you know, squirrel eating trash. And keep you down a little Uneducated. bit. Uneducated. Well, it's easier to justify fucking somebody out of their land, their heritage, their culture. And when I say fucked, I mean, I mean, you know, I don't know how my grandparents planted other than what I got personally give. And what they gave me was not what they learned, but what they were taught to forget so that they could use those industrial methods and Mm. those petrochemicals. So like the natural way to run a not to to keep a, a river bottom from going fallow, I do not have personal knowledge of that knowledge was restricted and the culture was taken away when they flooded the land. 
that first generation of hillbillies were hitting particularly hard. My great-grandparents' generation, literally when the land flooded, I had great aunts that just would hold hands and walk into the water, and they didn't come back up. Because really? they said they wanted to walk home and nobody could stop them. Right. Uh, the amount of suicide and alcoholism in that generation ate uh, three quarters of it immediately. And the rest of it slowly drank itself to death. Really? So All because TVA came in, flooded the yeah, land. And yeah. And made a bunch of money for themselves? Or oh, made God, a bunch, yeah. You know, a bunch of energy, I guess, was their big Well, was, was their big, big thing concern. And then with no-bid contracts and uh, they got all their eminent, buddies working eminent on it. domain, they have reclaimed the land that they took from my grandparents, great-grandparents, gave them like $13 an acre. You know, and now because of eminent domain and closed bids, you know, the boarding, you know, the fucking, the, all, all that land has been cut up and sold for $250,000 a quarter sure. acre as yeah. lakefront property now. Yeah. It's and, beautiful up there. Oh, it's gorgeous. Yeah. Go get you one of them houses. Yeah, right. You know, if you can afford it. Right. So where was that? That was in, was that in Hamlin County? Kid was Ridge. Kid was Ridge. Uh, Kid was Ridge. Uh, my family was the Mays, Mathis, Murphy, Smith uh, on that line. And we owned all the way from Panther Creek to Bean Station. That's a lot of land. Well, there were five families that were working in almost a Quaker-esque co-op out there. Is this your grandparents, great-grandparents? My great-grandparents. Okay, when's this? Not turn uh, of the this century. This is from they got there probably in 1790. They were uh, Welsh, but they came over during the uh, Scottish Reformation. Okay. They were Scottish Reformationists. Okay, so they could read. They were literate. They were sure. educated. So when were your grandparents alive then? Early mm. early 1900s. Well, my grandparents just died here in the last. Like my grandmother died four years ago. Bummer. But the great grandparents lived up into the 80s. Okay. You know, and I got to know my great-grandmother very well. She scared the fucking shit out of me, man. <laughs> oh, my God, That's dude. what grandmothers do. Have you ever seen a 90-year-old woman, like, fucking do snuff? I don't mean, like, <laughs> do snuff. oh, my God, dude. It was. I was like, I would just be like, oh, my God. She's just taking a bunch of snuff to the dome. <laughs> I was like, wow. Holy shit. I can't you believe know. women used to just do that all oh, the time, just take thing. tobacco straight up the nose. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, Philip Morris, man, that's, you know, he's fucking capitalist bitches. I'll say anything. if it, I don't give a fuck if it kills you. I've, I've been over on. to Germany a few times, and it's snuff is still alive and well. Oh, mainstream it's kicking, over there. Man. Yeah. You know, that was actually, I read a history of the advertising campaign one time that they did to get women to use snuff. It was yeah. really fucking twisted, man. Really? Re oh, my God, dude. I don't know. Advertising in general is twisted. The, yeah, whole, it's crazy. the whole concept of trying to I, manipulate someone into yeah. valuing something. So I listened to to something. I think it was like a This American Life or something talking about when bananas first started being uh, consumed in the mm -hmm. United States. They were shipping them here, and they're you know they're finally being able to ship them fast enough to where they wouldn't go bad on the boat. But women didn't want to eat them because of the phallic nature of them. Oh yeah. And so they'd send out these postcards with a bunch of Victorian women sitting underneath an elm tree eating, eating a, a banana. banana. Yeah. And oh like, my God. You know, it's like it's this whole social social thing. You just got to be told it's all right. A lot of time, marketing's the way that people 
people do that. Well, I mean, that's a social engineering in and of itself. And, you know, one of the other things that they socially engineered in the population, when I say they socially engineered, for every dollar they spent on a dam or a power line, they spent $3 socially engineering, and that's in all ways. That's really? That's every way they could. This Just population. kind of trying to control the population? By the time 38 and 39 had rolled around, uh, Himmler sent a fucking delegation over here to study really? the TVA. And Nazi Germany, Germany actually copied some of the methods and techniques that we had used to uh, repatriate uh especially Czechoslovakia, yeah. you know, how to get a culture and engineer it to use your, yeah. use your natural resources to build a, a community. Yeah. So a buddy of mine, uh, his name's Tori Olson. He wrote a book called agrarian crossings. Mm-hmm. And one of the chapters in there is about how TVA became this poster child for doing exactly what you just mentioned, mm-hmm. which was taking natural resources and building these communities around. Mm-hmm. And so uh, in like the Jim Crow era, there yeah. were African countries coming here to um, study the TVA. And so the fifth floor at the Farragut building where they had all these delegates and ambassadors from African countries was the only place in the Southeast that a black man and a white man could have a cup of coffee together because there's international oh, no. relations and going see, off. Well, going this, on. this goes in this area That's what the way, book says. way back. Now, when I say this, most of the community, most of the people that settled in Appalachia were either Scottish Reformationists, like my grandparents mm-hmm. who were Welsh uh, and Irish. Uh, and the other big group that came over was the Anabaptist Reformationists. What's that? Uh, well, you know, people people talk about the Calvin Reformation, you know, the whole Protestant Reformation. Uh, but, you know, those guys like nailed a little piece of paper on a door, okay, when they said we're going over here and separating, okay? Well, you said we're leaving? Yeah, what the Anabaptists did. See, they were Southern German. They were black German is what, what they. I've heard people refer to themselves as. But they're dark-skinned Germans, and the reason being is that, you know, Genghis Khan conquered to the freaking gates of Vienna, man. No way. So there's a heavy Indo-Eurasian genetic load in that that particular part gotcha. that the Anabaptist Reformation. Gotcha. And basically, what happened was, uh, you know, one of the kids from the field got taught to read to help do the taxes and shit, and saw a Gutenberg Bible and stole the motherfucker. Really? <laughs> and took it out in the field and started reading it. They're like, you know, just like, hey guys, you know. And apparently, the story goes that whoever this person was. Uh, that it started out with a couple, two, three people drop the rakes and shit and just come over and start listening. And next thing you and, know. And it was a church after and that? And it grew. And it grew. Well, here's what they did. They didn't nail no little piece of paper or pussy shit like that. No. Sorry, I apologize. I don't mean to diminish. <laughs> but, you know, the, 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 the seriousness and integrity of the Protestant Reformation. But they did not nail no stuff on no stuff. They started burning churches down. Uh. And they basically got to the point where it grew to such a large number of people that were doing this that the Swiss Guard got called out and they got hunted basically all across Europe and ended up in England headed for America right at the same time as the Scottish Reformationists. So, so they got on the same boat? Yes. And these okay. Anabaptists, that's where... And those were the Anabaptists that were and, burning yeah, churches? Yeah, gotcha. and these were the you know the beginnings of... The Amish and the Mennonites and, uh, you know, the Baptists, the Quakers, uh, you know, some Methodist sects are straight out of that. 
uh, in particular around here, not Southern Baptists, but missionary Baptists are a direct descendant of that. Gotcha. So, so Baptists are completely different from any other branch of, gotcha. you know, and the original Anabaptists were very educated because they wanted to make sure everybody knew how to read so that they can have personal access to this information. To the Bible. Yeah. Yeah. The Gutenberg Bible. Yeah, man. Yeah. It's, it's a, you know, Gutenberg Bibles, you know, you know, 16th, 1620s, 1630s. Yeah. This Reformation happened in the 1660s. And then as you roll into the 1700s, you've got the beginnings of the Scottish Reformation, which is King James saying, y'all need to get the hell out because it's cheaper to put you on a boat and sell you into indentured servitude than it is to kill you because saltpeter is expensive. Yeah. <laughs> Not the lead. We yeah. got plenty of lead. That fucking saltpeter, man, that's some shit to get. So, like, you know, we don't want to kill you, you know, so just go on. And all the land grants that were King James were given, of course, in the undiscovered country, which at the time was over the ridgeline, Tennessee. Gotcha. So that's State why you, yeah, and that's why, yes, brother, that's why they're all, you know, we have more people that wrote the Constitution and were presidents that either lived or directly, you know, are from this area for a reason. And that's because it was that Scottish Reformationist. Duncan Scottus was an amazing man. He was a monk. Who's that? Uh, well, like, to give you an idea here. You got Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, St. Thomas, Aquinas, and Duncan Scotus. That's the evolution of Western man's idea of civil yeah. uh, rights yeah. and, you know, the importance and integrity of the self. Uh, and so these people that were basically in this intellectual cult uh, were chased straight the hell out of England, and they all ended up here. And it was that group of people that actually started this fucking country. It was right here. So going back to integration and the culture's main one, this uh, part of the country is very, very special because of that demographic. Those Germans, when they got here, started mingling real quick with everybody else. And Ready to mingle. Uh, the first abolitionist publication was written somewhere around 1815 to 1817. I'm not real sure. I don't think many people even know, but it was written by a Methodist minister in Dandridge. Really? And Which is up near where you're from. Oh, yeah. It's high, it's about in between here yeah. and Morristown. But, uh, you know, and fast forward, you know, I mean, the Highlander Center uh, is over in that same area. Is that where they do the games? Nope, nope, no. The Highlander Center, my brother, is where Rosa Parks went to get her training before she sat on the bus. It's where Martin Luther King hung out with Woody Guthrie uh, when he was trying to dry out uh, before he marched on uh, Selma. Uh, it's a very, very special and important place, and I, I've had the fortune uh, of hanging out with some of them. Guy Carolyn was a personal hero of mine. Who's that? I was thinking about uh, just started to cry a little bit. Guy Carroll? No, Guy Carolyn. Guy Evan Carolyn that used to work down there at the bookstore on Kingston Pockets, his daddy, he's the man that got credited with Pete Seeger for writing the song We Shall Overcome. Really? Mm -hmm. And I got to hang out with him a lot before he died. Uh 
when his dementia got really bad, they wouldn't let many people around him, but I was kind of trusted by the family enough yeah. to get in there and uh, got a lot of stories from him. But this particular area is super special because, uh, you know, we believe in rights sure. around here. Uh, you want to give me just a second? It's all right, man. Whew. Take what you need. It's heavy. Yeah, well, I just started thinking about my time up there on that hill. And, whew, you know, it's some special shit. Man. Yeah. So, Guy Carolyn. Guy Carolyn. Yeah, man. I got, to, I got to hang out with him quite a bit. What a blessing. <sighs> Sounds like he made an impact. <sighs> In good ways and bad. Yeah. Um, when I tried to record uh, some of his knowledge, um, I got so much resistance. And I got, you know. From family? Uh, no, from the We Shall Overcome Foundation that owns the rights to that song. They bought He sold it. No, well, yeah, he did. He gave it up, and Pete Seeger gave it up to the Highlander to use as a future funding endeavor to help do what they do. <laughs> and, you know, the Highlander throughout the years has kind of hit some low places in that, you know, it hadn't had its sign burnt down again until about a year or two ago, <laughs> which when that sign got burnt down, I went, hell yeah, y'all are doing something right. What 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 was the beef? Oh man, you know, there's a neo-Nazi racist compound up there. There's really? like, oh god, there's a neo-Nazi militia compound at the Highland Center. Oh no, it's right on down the road from it. It was some of them that did it. They just hadn't been active in the community long enough in a visible way to, I guess, get them in trouble until recently. Gotcha. But anyway, yeah, you know, uh, you know, and we've got all that history that just sits here rumbling underneath everybody's noses and you know yeah i was having a conversation with a couple of uh young black guys the other day and and you know they're asking me why i played the blues and how i came about interacting with the blues the way that i do in this really visceral way and i told them i said man you know it's funny you know i grew up in a cultural vacuum where you know i mean all that culture was denied me there was no old men that taught me how to play music right uh, there was no old man other than my papa, who I was very blessed to spend a lot of time with, that uh, really gave a shit about me enough to even care to. But as I've gone on my personal journey, uh, spiritually and intellectually, and as an artist, uh, to find my culture, what I found was this intricately tangled, tightly woven web of interconnection between my culture and everyone else you know it's like genealogy it's like when you start figuring out where you come from genealogically yeah. you realize we're, we're not that connected. different after all and so i probably personally in my storytellers you know didactic memory heart have more information about a lot of people's cultures because i've listened to the stories uh than a lot of young people these days have themselves yeah and, uh, you know, just even telling that young black man about the Highlander and how much pride he should have and come from That's here. pretty cool. Oh, God, dude. You know, and I looked at him and I said, man, we are both in the same fucking boat, man. We are both like these stranded wayfaring passengers, you know, in this, you know, artificially induced culture that doesn't serve our needs, man. You know, fucking there's absolutely nothing commercial that I've listened to with the very slight exception you know, 
that is worth a fuck, really, that serves. Talks about real real stuff. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I'm a big Joseph Campbell fan, man, and he said that artists have a mythological responsibility uh, in that we must take what's going on in the culture and say or depict or translate what everyone is feeling, but no one has the ability to say. And in the form of music, it goes a little further in a very, very important direction. And that is that I have the responsibility when I play this music to put my finger and communicate an emotion that we all feel, but that we can't, we don't have solidarity in that feeling. Got to give a voice to something that doesn't yes, have its own. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, I'm very blessed in that when I play music, you know, I'm not there intellectually. I'm not thinking about what I'm doing. You know, I'm literally trying to grab the live wire that I feel that the, the real existence and give it away on and then grab that microphone and give it to you and yeah. let you show it to you. Yeah. And then, you know, as a sensitive person, you know, I start this weird feedback loop where I make you feel something and then and you, you start, make me feel something and you and start then I projecting it at me. And then it's it allows yeah. me to do these supernatural things. And, and by the, you know? by the time it's said and done, it's exponential. Oh energy yeah. And we're all smoking a, a damn cigarette. Like we busted a nut trying to figure out why we feel so good. <laughs> and you know, that is the thing about music that's so important. It's the only thing in this universe that can move you without touching you. And that's very important, man. Yeah. Smell, uh, maybe. Uh, well, I don't see. It'll make your ass run. I've run for some smell. Uh, you know, it's pretty bad, though, when the smell you need to run for from is connected to your ass. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I got to know, like, I, I've, I've been watching you for years. I love your music. It's Thank fantastic. Thank you so much, man. And, I've, you know, I've sat on a bar stool and talked to you before. And I, that's, you know, I've, I've always wanted to sit and do this with you on the mics because I've just been so intrigued every time I've talked to you and your music's moved me too. And I've been interested to know, like I caught you probably 10, 15 years into your musical journey, but like what, what got you in? You're going to laugh your ass off, man. I played trombone for three months in fourth grade and my mom, uh, had to take the trombone back because she couldn't afford the rental payments. And, um, so I didn't play music until, I had been writing for years, and I actually started my little journey that I'm on through visual art. When I was in high school, I won a lot of competitions, and I had an art for teacher. Drawing? Oh, my God. I had an art teacher named uh, Miss Miller, who is not with us any longer. Uh, but she gave a fuck about me. I mean, literally one morning, I had shotgun to fifth. And ate about 30 no-dos, okay, which in the old school <laughs> days, caffeine? it was actual Ma Huang ephedra. Like, if you took a bottle of these, these no-dos from 1986, 87, and brought it into the future, okay, a meth producer would give you, like, $30,000 for the <laughs> bottle because the shit's illegal and you can't get it anymore. And it's why it's so expensive it, and prohibitive. And you were taking it before Oh, my God. Class. I would take 100. I would take so many that when my heart beat, I could feel my hair go. <laughs> <laughs> the toupee in the wind. 
You go to use the uh, go to use the bathroom and start humming the song "I'm Captain Helmet Boy," <laughs> because you're not doing anything for a while after ingesting that much. When was this? When you were doing oh, the man? Art? I was in high school. Okay, man. I so was, you had an art teacher, Miss Miller, who Ms. Miller, took a. You gave my a damn freshman about you. year. I came in. I'd shotgun to fifth and taking about thirty no dos, and I was geeking the fuck out, man. And she came up and she asked me. She said, "What the fuck is wrong with you, kid?" She's like, "What did What did you do today?" And I told her, and she said, God damn. She goes and she gets some art supplies and she sets them down. Because up to this point, I'd just been the weird kid in yeah. the trench coat in the corner. And this is pre-Columbine, by the way. Yeah, you could still wear So anyway, coat. man, I'm sitting over in the corner, you know, and fucking, you know, the weird kid and the weird poor kid. And, you know, she says, well, you know what, man? And, you know, you need to fucking do some work here. And you need to do some kick-ass fucking art. And if you don't, I'm going to fucking, you know, I'm going to call the cops. I'm going to take you to the fucking principal. You're going to DHS. Yeah. You're fucking, you're a fuck, you're fucking up, kid. She basically said, tighten up your fucking ship, kid. Yeah. Like, you're fucking up. You're getting squirrely, you know? And she gave a fuck about me. And, uh, and every day I would go to her class, and it was such a fucking blessing to have this 45 fucking minutes where, you know, I could run around and set my goddamn head on fire. And as long as I was producing art that was fucking badass and awesome and weird and different, that, that I was accepted. And for the first time in my life, I had somebody, you know, do something other than kick my fucking teeth in because yeah. I was smart. Yeah. And, you know, that goes back to the whole social engineering. Goddamn, if TVA didn't make this one of the most anti-intellectual places... In the fucking world, man. I mean, you gotta go to like Siberia or some shit or Afghanistan where they'll cut your fucking hand off if you fucking desecrate whatever before you get to the level of. Cause see, here's the deal, man. If you're gay and everybody gets up on you and beats the shit out of you, you know, the social norm is hey, stop. That's not good. You're a bigot and there's yeah. social repercussions to it. If you do that because of color, Mm -hmm. Just the same. You're you're a racist, you're a piece of shit, and there's social consequences for it. But if everybody in the room gangs up and starts making fun of the fucking weird kid, well, hey, now, that's all right, because, you know, we need to explain away this kid's differences. We need to belittle him to elevate ourselves on whatever class ladder or whatever, because, you know, the very existence of something different then your eighth grade Sebago wearing, you know, braced ass could conceive would literally explode your fucking head. And the society rallies behind that and ratifies it. And so artists, if you're different in any way in East Tennessee, you're going to get the fucking shit kicked out of you, man. Yeah, I mean. Never fight a gay man from Appalachia. They will fucking destroy you. They know you. how to fight. Oh, God almighty, yeah. dude. 63-year-old kung fu queens, dude. Like, anyway. <laughs> yeah. That's another story <laughs> but, altogether. But so I feel like, at, I mean, I think there's there's definitely the, the further away you get from the university geographically in the city center you know, this is an enlightened place. Like we, we live in a, in a place where, you know, people are very intelligent here, but it do, you don't have to go very far to see oppression. On oh, a, 15 on miles in any direction. Actually, you don't even have to go that far. You just have to be close to the old city where if you take a rock and throw it in one direction, it's $2,500 a square foot. If you take a rock and spin around about 80 degrees, 
and throw the rock, the real estate is $2 and 14 cents a square foot. Yeah. And there's a reason for that. That's a that's built in segregation economically from the race rights back during the thirties and the ones again in the, I think 36 or 38 was the last one. They basically burnt down every middle-class black home in Mechanicsville from uh, Broadway all the way down Central. That's why Central is an industrial barren wasteland is because those homes were burned in a race riot. Really? And reclaimed when by was that? the gentry. Uh, I don't want. I don't want to go on record. I mean, yeah. but it was in the 30s. Man. Really? Yeah. I mean, it's people who I know. Africa, I had people in the African American community who uh, witnessed it personally when yeah. they were when you know I've talked to elders in that community who were like, "Yeah, dude, like, gotcha. seriously, you know." And the same thing happened with the black community that lives along the river there on the West End in the Bearden area. You know, half of Bearden was basically taken away from freed slaves that were living there. Uh, you know, all, into you know all, yeah, all of West Knoxville. Yeah. You know, to a certain degree or another, was either repatriated from you know lower class African Americans, uh, you know, economically, you know, or uh, you know, uh, you know, hillbillies that mm. own the land. So socioeconomically, uh, hillbillies and mm. uh, the African American community were on the same standing. Yeah. yeah. Same, so same notch on the yeah, on the, the same bell. And yeah. so, like, I call it the holler mentality. Uh, you know, uh, race relations in Appalachia kind of run along these lines. Uh, you know, if you settle in my holler and I don't like you, I'm going to have to kill all you motherfuckers. And that's mm. dirty and it's going to be expensive. Uh, or we can just hang the fuck out, uh, you know, uh, tolerate each other. And maybe, you know, do you need some corn? We've got extra beans. Sure. And there are two there ways was, you can go about that. Exactly. Yeah. And the Appalachian, especially from that Anabaptist community and the, the, the missionary Baptist way was to seek peace. Yeah. It's pacifist. Yeah. Pacifism yeah. and abolitionism all wrapped into one. And I and, think and the, the poorer whites were more, more willing to engage Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Because they saw them as equals. Yeah. Saw everybody as equals. They did. Yeah. And it's only been in the last two generations that that whole Baptist idea got co-opted. And it got co-opted for political reasons. You know, the whole prosperity gospel bullshit is like some straight white racist classist fucking bullshit. You know, that if, you know, you give that, that, that if you're a good Christian, God will give you money. No, Jesus gave everything he had away. He didn't, he died with nothing on a cross, man. Jesus, man, come on, get with it. Read your, read your Beatitudes, man. <laughs> I mean, it's not hard. If you want me to break it down, there's 96 correlations between Mark, Luke, and Matthew where all the parables are the same, leading one to believe there's a source book. I would go read that source book, okay? Like, for real, man, get with it. And, you know, I mean, I think if Jesus came back, lightning bolts would come out of his fucking pecker and destroy every, every single... Uh, you know, church with a swimming pool. He'd be mad. Yeah, well, think about the modern church that has a swimming pool. What is the difference between that and the ancient Jewish not letting quote-unquote unclean people bathe? No fucking difference. You know, it's like I'm not a member of this rich white fucking establishment, so I can't use your pool because I don't put enough money into this in shit. Yeah. No, dude. No. <laughs> Lightning bolts out his pecker. Boom. Dude, it's gone. I mean, just fucking kiss that shit goodbye. 
You know, I mean, I keep, I'm like this double-edged sword, you know, where it's like, hey, we're in the end of the days. We're going to get to see JC come back and fuck some shit up. And, <laughs> and we're like really excited. <laughs> and the other part of me is like, oh, yeah, that's probably not going to be too, that's going to be messy, man. <laughs> It's going to be really messy. Do you think we're really at the end of, end of times? Oh, God almighty, man. I know it like I know this table's... Woo! Look, yeah. man, my papa was a missionary Baptist road preacher. And that just basically means he had seven heart attacks in the pulpit. And the congregation and all the deacons said, Paul, you can't preach no more. And he <laughs> went to flip him off. And, of course, he's cut his finger off with a saw he made. And he, he nubs him, and he says, y'all go fuck yourselves. And he says, John, get in a Jeep. <laughs> and we drove, man, like 600 miles a week we drove. We would go everywhere, man. Doing we, what? We'd go to people's houses that weren't able to go to church. And preach and to them? Pap would go talk to them next to a stump. And I'd hunt the groundhogs out their garden. I'd fucking, you know, clean the gutters Provide out. Provide a service. Yeah, like I nine years old, pimping my little ass out, like redoing some old ladies like plumbing. You know what I mean? Yeah. But it was good, and it was awesome, and it was the most fulfilling thing. And, you know, he didn't talk a lot about his spirituality. His methodology was, if you want to know what I believe, watch my feet. Watch, watch where I go. Yeah. And what Feel I you there. That and, don't and, don't do as I say, do as I do. Well, he would just go to bars after he quit drinking, and he'd just sit in a bar and drink some coffee and wait for somebody to walk up and, and ask him, why, you're, him. why are you drinking? And he would say, well, you know, it's a funny story. <laughs> and you know, the funny story about my papa quitting drinking was uh, he was a race car driver and a mechanic. He opened up a, a high rod shop with his brother on Lincoln Highway. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. And who needs a souped-up inline V8 bored out 40 over with some beefy suspension back in 53? Uh, and this, Keep in mind, this is before NASCAR. Yeah. And so he would build all the Shiner's cars for him. Yeah. And he would also race with them. And hell, half the time, he'd be driving his own car and three-quarters of the cars on the track he'd fucking built, too. And it'd give him an edge because he'd fuck them up sometimes just to be a dick. (laughs) Was he running Moonshine? Or was he just building cars for him? No, he was building cars for him. But he accepted Moonshine as payments. And he had become a pretty bad alcoholic by the mid-50s, mid to late 50s. And one time, he he had bet on a race, his own race. (laughs) The Pete Rose, yeah, did, didn't the he? Christmas <laughs> over Christmas, and fucking like threw a fucking threw a rod and lost the fucking race and lost the Christmas money. Uh, and, and that's when he decided to quit drinking. At, no, listen to this <laughs> shit. My mama was a skillet ninja. Now let me explain. <laughs> the women of Appalachia are very particular. They have a level you can bring them to before they will grab a skillet and try and kill you. And it's that fuck you, my babies will survive. Like mama bear crazy bullshit and she literally chased him with a damn number 10 all over and beat the living fuck out of him and beat him so bad he he didn't wake up for two days but in the killing blow she was gonna fucking kill him like literally and he apparently like lopped over to the left and the skillet hit a hickory stump and it split the skillet (laughs) at the handle right and so anyway when he woke up like a couple of days later, black and blue, and what we affectionately refer to today as a coma, uh, he quit drinking. Really? And literally within a week, he started preaching. And in about about 
two months later, he had built his first church. Really? Oh, that God, fast? Yeah. Oh, God. Quit, yeah. you know, a whole life running amok, and then you quit drinking for two months, and you built a church. Yeah. <laughs> that's about yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and that's exactly how I have it. And, and you, you know, spent a bunch of time with him, right? Well, oh, God, man. Man, he knew my life was going to be a ball of Were both parents shit. around when you were growing up? Look, he looked at my mom, and then he looked at my dad, and he was just shook his fucking head, and he decided that I needed to be iron-wheeled and trained like a fucking dog. And in a lot of ways, it was fucking child abuse. But in a lot of other ways, it was preparing me for how hard my life was going to be. Yeah. And he knew it. He just fucking knew it. And talking about the end of days, man, I can remember before he passed away. He passed when I was 16. And uh, we were driving. See, we used to... <laughs> We used to watch the Materfields. We'd camp in the Materfields, Scott's Materfields, me and him. And we did it every summer for about nine years. And he would drop me off in the day over at the Bush Brothers with a twenty-two two fifty and a fucking box of Debbie cakes. And I would hunt groundhogs. <laughs> I'm not fucking with you. Seriously. <laughs> I was 4H 22250 champion fucking four years in a row. You man. could fire it. Oh, my God. My papa could strike a fucking match at, like, fucking my grandfather, too. Even my shit-ass Baptist preacher fuck uncle. Oh, man, I just said that, didn't I? <laughs> Don't get a vulnerability hangover on the way home and tell me to take the part out about your uncle. <laughs> I don't give a fuck. He's a piece of shit. You know? He is what happened to the... To the church community. that my papa started, it's just a self-aggrandized, self-appeasing, judgmental, uh, fucking shitty cult. You know, I hear a that lot puts of like, everybody else down to make itself feel special, and then goes and votes for Donald Goddamn Trump. Yeah, yeah. I hear I hear a lot of that with with churches as they start to, if you're not careful, they start to borderline on cult. If they go, they go unchecked. Start to well, going back to my end days through, see, here's the deal. Pat, before he died one night, we was still running our last round together through the, because he knew he was getting ready to go. And he was still able to, you know, drive, which was a fucking blessing. I mean, no 77-year-old man with all his shit should be driving, but he did. And it was late one night. Late one night, and it was foggy like it gets right there on the river bottom. You know, that kind of fog where there's no, you know, it's either stop the car in the middle of the road or just fucking creep. Yep. And he put his hand on my neck, and he he said, son, you know, I'm not going to see it. And I said, see what, Papa? He said, I can't tell you when it's going to be. He said, son, but it's been made known to me that you're going to see it. And then really? one day... You're going to remember everything I've ever taught you and everything I've ever said. And he said, you're going to see it, boy, so get ready. And, uh, you know, and now that I've kind of had a spiritual reawakening, and, you know, good thing about the Baptists is they don't give a fuck what nobody tells them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, everything's about your personal revelation. And, you know, I had a... You know, after all the death we've experienced in Knoxville, especially after Rylan Bledsoe died, I had a nervous breakdown. Really? Oh, so God. Recently. Oh, Jesus, man. I had a nervous breakdown. I, uh, you know, I've had a lot of trouble with suicide in my life. 
because it's been so fucking hard. And it's like a fucking war of attrition on a spiritual and emotional level. And I feel like me and that boy were in trenches together. And when he went, I feel like why him, not me. Because he didn't just kill himself. He fucking set himself on fire like a Buddhist monk. You know, I don't want to talk publicly about the situation, but goddamn, man, motherfucker, don't do that unless you're just fucking, you're done. Unless it's become so toxic for you to exist on this fucking plane that you can't do nothing but check the fuck out. And that's what we're facing. And it made me mad. It made me very mad. It made me the kind of mad. That puts you in a penitentiary, a mental institution, or makes you build a church. And that's where I'm at right now. Which Going, one are you going to do? Oh, I'm building a church, brother. When that stage went up down there at the Bridden Brickyard, I felt the same way my papa felt uh, when he built his first church. And don't ask me how I know that firsthand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I know. Yeah. And so it's been a real spiritual transformation where – you know, my interconnectedness to my community, all the people I know and all the people I love, I just feel these tendrils of connection. Sutras is, would be the Sanskrit word, the threads that bind us all together. The musical community and the artist community is very tight because we've all experienced these hardships together uh, so frequently that it forms this bond and this patronage that's a lot like soldiers feel. You know, that very unquestioning, undying, um, just love, unconditional love mm. that you feel with the community that you come from. Is and that the basis for why you want to build this thing? Why you want to, I mean, you got Mad Monk. And I want to do it for people I don't love, too. I want to really? do it for people that I don't like. I want to do it for people that don't like me. You know, whether or not you uh, enjoy my flavor of person or not is inconsequential to the goal of being able to connect people into a new economy, an economy that's based on services and on need. And that's what I'm trying to transform the music industry here in Knoxville into. Um, you know, with the goal of us all being able through our mutual participation uh, and collective organization that we can help sustain each other. Mm. We're, uh, you know, uh, the first thing I did was I started a company called Mad Monk Entertainment, and then I started building stages uh, and trying to manage, you know, develop other and stages. Then, and then book those stages? Well, we have to do outdoor, man. You know, yeah, the science. Yeah, I mean, I sat and for three months, man, trying to every way I could see my way around this. And then we started getting some data from, uh, you know, Europe and what Europe was doing and some of the journals, what they were saying, the science, you know, and the science basically states that if you're outdoors, I mean, six feet's awesome. Yeah. But, uh, you know, if it's humid outside, the chances of transmission, I mean, you basically have to be doing some dumbass hippie look shit and licking on each other and shit. Yeah. You know, to transmit it, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, outdoors outdoors, and the ACE5 and ACE7 receptors in the back of your nostrils, the mutation that allowed the virus to actually attach there, 
uh, and smokers especially, I, I really don't want to spread disinformation, mm. but that part of a smoker's body is destroyed by smoking. Mm -hmm. So I think that Are they may more likely to more less likely because less they likely. don't have the fucking receptors. There's gotcha. nothing there. It's just mucus there, yeah. which of course, you know. I've heard that. I hadn't done any research on it, but I have heard well, that there, smokers. There were three double-blind trials that didn't conclusively, but showed statistical data that leaned that way. And then you look at just, you know, basic, uh, you know, uh, you know the, the physics of, you know, what happens to air when you're outside, mm -hmm. you know. And, uh, you know, I basically created a situation where, and I don't want to, you know, quantify this or qualify it, but I want to say absolutely that I believe that coming to one of these shows outdoors is fucking it's just safe. as safe as going, probably safer than going to the grocery store. Right. Because I pre-screen COVID at playground fucking mouth-breathing people before they even get in. Mm. You know, if you have a trouble putting a mask on when you come inside, my doorman lets you know that that's going to be expected of you. Right. If you don't have to pay the $5 to get in, and we have the right to refuse service. Sure. So right there... You know, you've got a yeah, you've got a good screening process. Yeah, because it's it's going to keep the people who believe. Yeah, <laughs> safe, I mean, you know? yeah, and so everybody that comes to the establishments that I'm helping work with, I think on a certain level has that same mutual care. Mm. You know, and it's like you know, I I started looking at people that don't believe this shit's real. Like I look at mentally handicapped people and junkies, and instead of being an abstinence, I have to convince you why you should do sure. this. I mean, telling, you know, some messed up fucking, you know, you know, Breitbart reading, if they read, Fox News watching person, why they should give a fuck about somebody else would literally make their fragile eggshell mind explode. <laughs> And nobody wants that. It's fucking messy. So I, instead of being a dick to these people, I just started. Choose not to have them around. Well, and when I can, use harm reduction techniques, which if you're familiar with any recovery lingo, is basically instead of demeaning a person, uh, going to that person where they're at and mm, then trying. Them at their house. Well, and trying to metaphysically speak. Yeah, yeah, right. But but go there and 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 instead of demeaning or condemning or taking an abstinence approach, you try to normalize better behaviors mm. and dis incentivize negative ones through association. So, Makes sense. You know, the thing about it is, is, you know, it's like fucking culture, man. Artists are the forebears of this culture, whether they choose to be or not, we are. And, you know, it's the cool kids theory. You know, <laughs> if the fucking cool kid's doing it, sure. you know, everybody wants to be a fucking cool kid. So I think with a concerted effort in a cultural responsibility sense, that we can normalize better behaviors because I'm going to be really honest with you, man. Uh, if if I can't make this work through the winter, I can't tell you I'm going to be here. And I don't know what that means, but like, you know, at least not in East Tennessee. Feel you. Uh, because I just, you know, uh, the spirit's moving me right now. And, uh, you know, what, what what I'm doing needs to get some traction real quick, real quick. Uh, I've always been drawn to you, and I've always believed in what you're doing. I've, it's been easy for me to say when you're on the stage, or easy for me to see when you've been on the stage. You're preaching a good message, man. I, What's well, hope, man? I mean, life is a shitty, goddamn, brutal, fucking short mess, and we're all goddamn confused, hairless, horny monkeys flinging poo into the fucking universe. <laughs> 
And that's a fact. Every bit of that is yes. So then what? Like make make it as, as bearable as possible? Is that what you're going after? Or make it better than it could be? Or like what's your, I guess, what's your mission there? Because well, you're, obviously, you're obviously enriching people's lives in a lot of ways, I think. Well, I think if I can harness that energy, take responsibility of it, instill selflessly in a very non-ego, non-Ottman way, direct that energy to a place where uh, I can affect a community of mm. people in a way that gives them hope. And then like all my songs, when I play blues, that's some sad fucking shit. You know, I got a song that I've written called The Ballad of Charlie Mitchell that is not a... <laughs> It's not a murder bout. It's a fucking killing floor song because I take you down to where Charlie Mitchell, a Melungeon Mustang mechanic from Morristown that I worked for, shot his wife 13 times with a fucking bolt action rifle. Gangster grass songs like yeah. Little, Little Sadie or Go Charlie, Knoxville go Girl. get your damn Mustang down the road. You Don't you know the devil's after you? Yeah, man. Old Charlie Mitchell was a Mustang man living around a corner, around a brass spike man and got the fast machine, kept the motor clean. Prettiest yeah. damn 427 Super Cobra Jet you ever did see. <laughs> oh, yeah. I miss seeing you live, dude. I, you're, I don't know why it, you've always, the first time I saw you, I just had this moment of like, it felt like Dr. John to me for well, some reason. Well, let's go back to why, how I started playing music. Got a little sideline there. I was running, uh, I was, you know, around some associates who had access to what we shall call Exhibit A, which is <laughs> organic fucking Hawaiian rosewood seed, chemically stable LSD. And I ate 90 hits of this shit accidentally. Oh, no. And I spirit walked when I was about 19. I just oh, popped no. right the fuck out my head and see, we're moving out of this house, okay? Because I'd gotten my dad his VA and he got seven years back pay. And we were moving out of this house to get a bigger house. And my mama knows my daddy's crazy, and so she fucking paints all the walls pink. So let me paint the scenario. We're in a suburban house with pink walls and a baby grand piano and fucking 15 twacked-out motherfuckers and me. Who, 50 parents, friends, or no, family? No, we were or? having a party because we were moving out of the house, and okay. there's nothing in the fucking house but a piano. It's empty. And a we house all, cooling oh party. God, it's like a housewarming we party, except you're So anyway, I sit down in front of the baby grand piano, and I shoot the fuck out of my head. And when I say I shoot the fuck out of my head, I spirit walk. I go, and get astral for a second. And I'm looking at myself going, oh, You're looking down fuck? from up, but you're watching yourself outside Well, the life. last time I had experienced that was when I was eight years old. I died in a car wreck when I was eight. I had a... Broke my heart stopped everything. Well, cranium, yeah, I was dead for 36 minutes. Uh, crane, that was the second time I died. I was dead for eight minutes coming out of mama's womb. I was a blue baby. She had toxemia. Mom and dad shouldn't have kids. Holy hell. They shouldn't have kids because dad's our age. Uh, but anyway. Did you say RH? Yeah, RH negative. He's got that the the crazy mutant shit. What is that? What's RH stand for? It's uh RH negative blood. It's like a fucking mutation only found in seven percent of the population. Oh man. Or no, I think it may be more. I can't remember if it's dominant or recessive. But anyway, uh they shouldn't have had kids. Mom had complications. So I died in the womb. Then I was in a car wreck when I was eight, and they didn't know I was allergic to opioids, which, by the way, is the only fucking reason I made it out of Morristown alive. I bet. 
and they gave me anesthesia and it killed me. And it took them a long time to figure out why they couldn't get me back, you know. So they ended up having to Narcan me and then adrenaline me and then paddleboard me. And by that Holy time, shit. I had been crossed over for fucking 30 minutes, hanging out, talking to people, fucking doing shit, you know. And, like, so I can remember popping up in my body and, like, that no anesthesia, you know, my cranium's cracked in three places. My mandible's broken six. Every tooth that they had put in back in my head, I'd thrown up. And uh, I had a hundred plus bones broken from my neck down, and I felt that all at once. And that pain from that trauma just kind of fucking, you know, kicked my, you know, it's like I popped back out of my body and was looking at my body straight up. So was there a moment when you reconciled the? Oh, the I heard a fucking, I heard a, I heard a fucking old lady, and I could smell Chantilly lace, which is what my great granny Mays wore. And I heard a fucking old lady say, "Crawl in the back of your head and flip the switch." No way. And that's what I fucking did. She knew you were coming back. I fucking, I went, and I woke up five months later in a full halo and a body cast. Really? Oh, God, yeah. They were like, they looked at me and on the bed, and they looked at my parents. They said, man, this boy's going to be tarted. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to go ahead and just put him in a whatever. Yeah. You know, and then like, you know, two years later, three years later, I'm like winning academic competitions, you know, I'm like... Fucking, I could run the mile on crutches in about six and a half. Really? Oh, God, yeah, dude. <laughs> like I fucking, I was on crutches for fucking seven years, dude. Really? And I, and I know crutch food. I will fuck you up. Crutch food? Oh, my God. I whip <laughs> so many kids' fucking asses with crutches because if I got a good hop on you and I can sling it, the hay oh, fuck you, man. I will knock you out. So I dropped about five or six kids before I got off crutches. And when I got off crutches. When you were 15? Oh, no. From the time 14? I was eight until, I think the last time from surgery was when I was 14. So I was on and off them for years. It was a shit ton of rehab. All because and, of the wreck. Oh, yeah. And, like, the pain was just fucking, you know, juvenile rheumatoid arthritis ain't got shit on some shit like that. Really? Yeah. And, and you knew you were allergic to opioids. Oh, yeah. That's fucking great. Stuff. I accidentally did nasal morphine one time. And, uh, uh, oh, my God, it was Wednesday. It was Coach Bryant's fucking geography class. And this girl gave me some nasal morphine. I didn't know what it was. She said, squirt up your nose. And I projectile vomited for 15 fucking minutes. Really? Man. Yeah. In almost, school? I almost, it almost killed me, yeah. So, but anyway. So back to know. the pink house. Yeah, so I'm tripping nuts, man. And I pop <laughs> out. And I'm like, oh, my God, flip, go hit the button in the back of your head. Boom, I'm back in my body. <laughs> And I'm playing <laughs> Mozart. I'm playing Mozart in the Moonlit Sonata. Did you? Never played before in my fucking life. Really? And I hear an old black man over here, and he says to me, boy, you've got a job to do. And I hear this old white man laughing his ass off. And he says, yeah, boy, but you better shut the fuck up because they're going to kill you. And I went, whoa. That's dark. Well, I was into some shit at the time. Yeah. Let's just say, <laughs> as like as it. as the only philosophy major in the entire Board of Regents system for two years, the first philosophy major undergraduate to publish in the state of fucking Tennessee. Really? Oh yeah, man. April in college? April uh, two thousand issue of Southeastern Philosophical Journal. They printed about forty pages of a seventy page construct i wrote called materialistic self-assessment is the cancer of the modern self if you see yourself as yourself 
which is the truest self through the lens of the modern consumer sense of self, then the end product of yourself will be neurotic in that Quan Lee made 40,000 t-shirts that day and your little ass buying it at Hot Topic don't mean fucking shit. <laughs> you sounds like you remember the whole thing. Mm. Yeah. That's some, that's some, I mean, that's some philosophy stuff. Axiology, right human value theory. It's a branch of phenomenology, which is the only branch of philosophy that you can actually apply fucking mathematics to. You know, it's like, it's no longer bullshit, boys. What are we doing here? I don't know. Let's it. build some AI around it. Okay. <laughs> you can either make evil AI or be a bioethicist, or you could just be a stoner. <laughs> And so you chose. I fucking I went off over here and said, fuck all y'all like my papa did and did my own goddamn thing. Yeah. That's what I did. So how do you go from how do you go from not playing a piano in your life to playing did you say Moonlit Sonata? Yeah, Jai is good, man. She it, has gifts, bro, my bro. She lays them down on you. Is that all by ear? No, or, I don't know. I don't know where yeah. the fuck it comes from. I mean, I understand a lot more now as I've learned uh over the years. I know a lot of theory now. But initially, I just moved my fingers, man. Really? They just knew what to do. And then when did, where did cornbread come from? Oh, uh, we had started a hippie commune slash kind of a trap house, really, to be honest with you. And it's great big old mansion down on Main Street in Morristown. And we would have band practice every Wednesday, okay, or every Wednesday and Sunday. And my memo, God love her, knew she was getting seen on, okay? And she lined all the grandkids up. She looked at her only granddaughter, and she shook her head, and she's like, man, I love you, but you can't boil water. John, get over here. John, get over here. Come on. And she led me in the kitchen, and she tied a little fucking apron on me, and she taught me everything she knew. I learned all the all the cobbler, all how to get the game out of bear, how to how to flay, prepare every game, whatever the fuck you want to do, I can do it because she taught me. It is that did she give you the the moniker? Well what was happening is I was getting real high and we were having these big acid parties all the time. And I would just bake cornbread and fuck with it and yeah. be like, what do you want to do with this? You know, and I would make a different cornbread like, you know, every week. Because I was practicing the recipes that Memo was 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 basically dropping on me, and I wanted to share them. You know, food's always been a really big part of the extended family. You know, I mean, my Memo cooked for like thirty fucking people every day, literally. I mean, just people that needed to eat would yeah. just come to yeah. the house. You know, it's like there's always food there. And Papa was a preacher, so oh, yeah, there's plenty of. Plenty of people around. Come on, y'all, you know. And, you know, because hell, half the time, people just get Papa food. They know what he, you know. Yeah. I mean, you know. Yeah. Everywhere we go, we come home with two bushels of beans or, you know, a sack of taters or some squash. Yeah. Whatever the hell was going on. Yeah. You know. And and so then you said, that's what I'm going to name my band or mm -hmm. myself? They said, y'all sound like some cornbread blues. Because ah. we were playing real psychedelic blues shit, man. You know, like fucking... You know, old Pink Floyd shit, you know, yeah. like imagine I've got a bike. It's a very nice bike, but, you know, like <laughs> like the first band I was in was called Gypsy Love and the Fire Gods. That was a band? That was that a you band. were in? Oh, yeah, dude. We recorded a fucking album and everything. Yeah. Like, and I wrote the craziest songs, man. I wrote one song, uh, what was it, Golden Underwear. 
And the lyric was, all these wise, recycled, junky hipsters struggle their fat beards and ponder the significance of throwing down. Dude, it's more of your... <laughs> that exact your... moment when you turn that frown upside down and then the chorus is, you got your golden underwear freaking me out. I said, you know, it. and I was talking about, you know, people who just have all this shiny new shit and yeah. they think that this, you know, look yeah. at me, woo, yeah. like I got golden underwear. <laughs> and I tell people, I was like, if I had some golden underwear, I took that shit to the pawn shop a long time ago, <laughs> long time. <laughs> you know, we wouldn't be driving, you know, Zion, man. So you went from the gypsy band to the to starting your own thing yeah, through cornbread. And how long did you did you do the court? You're still doing it, right? Well, yeah. I mean, in one form or another. I mean, I've played with you know well over 150 to 200 steady members over the 15 years that I've been in the project. Yeah. You know, and a lot of the people that have played with cornbread have gone on to do fucking amazing things. I mean, you know, Tom fucking Pryor, man. Woo, yeah. man! Shout out to Tom. Yeah. Holy fucking shit, dude! You dude, know? we got to clear the air though, but. Because yeah. like cornbread was the dude who oh, was, was the petty thief next to my house in Park Ridge. Don't get me started on this, son. But have you have you been confused for that before? Oh my God, all the time. And if I find this fat son bitch, now listen, he stole some shit from me. Really? He stole some mechanics tools. He's a my famous petty thief. Yep. There's a actually a North Knoxville cornbread watch site, right? Yeah. Facebook. Yeah. yeah. Facebook group. So everybody thinks I'm him. When I find him, I'm going to whip his ass. Because I'm going to tell you, I quit, I quit fucking stealing cars a long time ago. <laughs> and after quitting drinking, oh, God, dude, I was fucking straight the fuck up. Yeah, man. I boosted for a hot minute. How do you think I got to all these poetry readings yeah. when I was 14 years old? Like my mama gave a fuck enough to fucking drive me anywhere? Yeah. That bitch wouldn't drive me to the fucking boys club. So, uh, you know, what, what was harder, quitting drinking or quitting stealing cars? Oh, quitting stealing cars. Yeah. <laughs> Holy fucking shit, man. That's a rush. <laughs> and most of the time, I just, you know, fucking enjoy ride, man. I go yeah. get somebody's car and I bring it right back. Yeah. Generally in the same condition, sometimes <laughs> not. Sometimes I couldn't bring it back because it was in a river or uh, stuck on a railroad track or, you know. Well, and, and, I, and I, I thought it was, you know, worth clearing the air a little bit about, you, you know, you're not, a, you're, not the, you're not the petty thief. No, man. I tell you what, I, I've had a lot of vices in my life. I sure have, brother. And I'm not going to lie to you, man. I've, you know, fuck, man. I mean, all right, we'll get into some of the stuff that I've been privy to. By association, you know, I mean, I had a real hard lick when I was growing up, too. You know, I was molested pretty badly. I, mean, I was in a fucking pedophile ring for for years before it got really? busted. Oh, yeah, dude. And it was down in some projects that we were living in. Some uh, Section 8 housing called West End Apartments. In down Morristown? Yeah, what it was was uh, basically oh, somebody that sold drugs. You know, he was selling Freebase or whatever it was. and had basically strung a woman out, not for her, but for her kids, and had groomed a couple of kids to kind of set the scenario. And, you know, it's like Betamax shit, hidden camera shit, you know, oh but it God. was like, you know, and it was like me and a couple of guys and like four or five, you know, a lot of girls came through. But, uh, you know, so I didn't terrible, even really man. know that it was bad because, you know, it's talk about, you know, normalizing shit. You know, I mean, when you get abused that badly, you just normalize a lot of shit where you just don't understand and you're young and you don't know. And, you know, so, you know, coming on the other side of that, you know, I mean, I've had a lot of addictions in my life, you know, ways that I've tried to cope 
with trauma and with pain. And I know a lot of other people have a lot of trauma and pain like that. You know, we're kind of a select club. We can smell each other. It's like we only feel comfortable around other people that have been through that. And, you know, it, at first that enables a lot of dysfunction and shitty stuff. I mean, I was a pretty bad sex addict for most of my adult life, you know, and was aware of it while I was doing it. And it had led me to having, you know, some pretty severe droughts of celibacy that were absolutely self-intended over, you know, I would say I've spent close to six years of my adult life in complete celibacy uh, to kind of systematically and ritualistically reprogram my shit, man. You Is it know? a penance? No, no, because I forgive myself, man, and I forgive, you know, even the people that did this to me, you know, I mean, I forgive them absolutely. I mean, I hope they're okay. I hope they're here now with us, uh, you know, when they were able to heal from it. But if you take trauma like that and you don't deal with it, what happens is that it enters your subconscious mind and basically starts to control you. It's that little whisper and that little voice in the back of your head that makes you do really fucked up shit. And if you allow it to grow and nurture, you know, you can really end up, you know, doing to other people, I think, what's been done to you. And so it's karma, you know, it's just karma. It's my yeah. karma. And I had to work through it. And you know what? I don't even, I actually think that in a lot of ways it's a blessing. I think a lot of the shit that I've been through in my life, and it's an abnormally large amount of just random shit. You know, I lived on the streets of New Orleans when I was 15 years old for six months because I was getting tired of getting fucking, you know, beat at home half to death, beat so bad you shit yourself. And then go to school and have people beat you with two by fours, you know, have three, four people. I mean, I've been, you know, I've been stabbed a couple times. I've been, you know, shot at. I've been run over with a car. I've been beat with two by fours, lead pipes, bricks, river rocks, cinder blocks. Never was around. And, you know, and I had to survive. And I've survived, man. I mean, you know, I'm like the, you know, El Grande Cacarocha, man. You know, I mean, fucking, you know. And that's okay, man, and that's fine, and I see it as a blessing, and I'll tell you why, because there's not many people walking on this planet that I can't look at and look in their eyes, and it doesn't matter where they come from and what they've been through, uh, I'm able to relate to them, mm -hmm. you know, and see them as a human and not dehumanize them, you know, and... That's some more of that, just universal. Yeah. Hillbilly stuff well, that you were talking man, about earlier. You know, with, with it's, it's people are people, and it's the times we're in, brother, are so perilous. And you know, I don't want to get into no crazy shaman mojo bullshit mumbo jumbo here, but I want to say that you know, I mean, what we're seeing with our eyes right now, all this suffering, that there is something in this universe that you know, enjoys and thrives on that, and it's growing and it's perpetuating. You know, I've got, you know, close to 30 body bags here just in the last five months of people committing suicide, overdoses, you know, because of fentanyl, you know. I mean, I don't, we don't want to, I don't want to talk about Justin Towns Earl, but if you have been clean for years and you get weak like a human being does, 
and you go back and you you know you try and get a little taste because you know it's just so bad right now where you're at you think it can't get no worse and then you go back and guess what it's got fucking you know north korean fentanyl in it that the cartels negotiated with through the cia supply chains that watch the poppy fields in afghanistan you know tinfoil hat reassert boom <laughs> there you fucking go well but, i mean fentanyl is a real problem and it takes people that it doesn't matter right. how little you do, you're going to die. You're going to fucking die. And if you don't have somebody with Narcan around or you don't have somebody that's like me, knowledgeable and has been around it so much and done CPR on like 18 people, you know, and, uh, you know, you don't know. And these people, these people flutter out and their light blows out. And, you know, sometimes there's so many people dying right now from this that, you know, I can almost hear them like fucking popcorn, and it just doesn't stop. It never stops. It doesn't stop when I sleep. When I go to sleep, man, I haven't slept good in about seven months, man. Nobody's there to tell them you to know? flip the switch again, you know? No, Nobody's there no, to tell them to hit the switch. No, they're not, because most people are spiritually fucking dead right now, because this culture doesn't in any way enable true spirituality. You know, it gives you... A, a judgmental piece of shit code that tells you whether you're good or bad or right. you're going to heaven or hell. Yeah. But none of these religions really want you to act. Because if you, you know, acted like, you know, JC, who is a close personal friend of mine, mm -hmm. I might say. Mm -hmm. Me, him, and old Sid Hartha, you know, mm -hmm. are pretty yeah. tired. I love old Sid. He's a good friend of mine, too. <laughs> What else you got going on right now? I'm, well, you got, I'm, I'm still playing, right? I have injected uh, over $30,000 in the local artist economy through booking shows and developing stages over the last month and a half. That's awesome, man. And, you know, when that economy comes from not just the kids playing and what I've paid them, but, you know, the money probably made a lot more than that for the venues that mm -hmm. I've worked for. But we just have to do something different, man. I mean, we're not going to survive. We're not going to be here. This industry isn't going to survive. I can't. Got to adapt somehow. Yeah, and I mean, I don't have any kids that I know of. I might be getting some phone calls <laughs> from fucking New York here in a few years. <laughs> yeah, it's the only reason I haven't done 23andMe, by the way. Um, <laughs> don't need that on the record. That was crazy. Yeah. You know, anyway. Oh, I don't know if you can hear my back pop. Oh, but damn, that felt good. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm just trying to find alternate, uh, you know, methods of revenue. And if you guys can go back and check out that Mad Monk Entertainment Facebook site, you'll see that I've got, you know, 20 plus shows that are full sets with high quality, high fidelity. Mm -hmm. uh, it's mono, but it's of high quality. You can put it on your radio and crank that motherfucker all the way up. Didn't and you do uh, Captain Midnight Band recently? We did, we did, and what a blessing! I just was I, that good. It was fucking phenomenal. Uh, Josh, that was a Josh, Josh Cooker is a fucking madman and a genius. See the front man for Captain yes, Midnight, yeah. and everybody that works with him is just an absolute consummate professional and an artist in their own right. And they really work well as a cohesive unit to kind of bring to fruition his vision. Of Mm. of what he wants his art to be and uh, they're just so much fun they're one of these bands that like connects you back to this state of existence i mean for all intents and purposes he's the last fort that's being held that has a waterbed in the bedroom of it <laughs> 
And he has just hung on to this dream, and it's beautiful to see him do his work, and it connects with people and touches people. And, you know, I've never left one of their – I've been a huge fan of theirs for years, and this is kind of the sneaky shit that I do. You ready for this? Mm-hmm. I've been trying to open for them for six fucking years. Mm-hmm. And the only way I could open for them is really to concoct this scenario where they have to play yeah, and then open for them. So I got to I got to do a solo opening set for them. That's awesome. Warm the crowd up for yeah. them, you know. That's kind of how I feel about you. I feel like I, uh, I I had to concoct a way to get you to come sit in my shop and talk to me for an hour because I've, I've I know, always right. wanted to pick your brain. How fucking long have we been sitting here, man? Holy an hour, shit! Twenty minutes. I don't know, really. Yeah. God, yeah. you're gonna have to edit some of that shit no, that might t- can't get, do get that. me put in jail. I no, don't know. Yeah, no, we can't do that. No. But yeah, the Mad Monk Entertainment, man, I just, I've had, you know, there's parts of the Bible where it says a young man will have visions and the old men will dream dreams. And a lot of the reason that, you know, going back to the whole end of times thing is that I'm in a point in my life where I'm literally having dreams of, of ways that really we can spiritually and physically survive through this time that we're getting ready to go into. And I'm smart enough to realize that we have no foundation other than each other. And it's kind of like boats, man. It's like if we all tie our boats together, we are our own. We are our own anchor. And so trying to develop these connections and organize the community in such a way that we can identify the people that have need and kind of sweep in. And with the nonprofit right now, I'm telling everybody, get your PayPal. And get your PayPal debit. And, you know, I'm going to call you up and I'm going to ask you why you're not playing. And, you know, if I can't throw money at it, then I'm going to send somebody to your house <laughs> and help you out with whatever you need. Do you need yeah. recovery? Do you need access to mental health? Mm-hmm. Uh, do you need money? Do you have food security? Do you have housing You're security? talking about with artists. Yes. You're, you're trying yes. to support artists through Mad Monk. Yes. God Almighty, we got to keep and each all, other and there's, and there's all different kinds of ways that you can do that because artists are going through a hell of a time right now. It's individual basis. And Why aren't it's you direct playing? direct action. Exactly. Me right now? I no, no, no. You're, I, that's what you're going yeah, to ask. Yeah. Why aren't Why you playing? Are you and playing? then let me fix it. And even if you don't feel comfortable coming outdoors to play, know that you have access to this system of musical fellowship where – you can get your needs met, you can connect, you know, we're all here and we're all in it together. And, you know, like, especially with the recovery community, even having that aspect in the artist community is revolutionary. I mean, this last show, uh, the last Captain Midnight show, we sold out a near beer. Yeah. We sold out of alcoholic beer. We had to send we had beer, to yeah. send by to somebody's store to get some goddamn bush in hey before these motherfuckers fell off. That's the great. And it's, you know, one of those things where, you know, it's like people look at me and they're like, I can't believe you fucking quit drinking. And I'm like, they're like, if you know, goddamn, if you could do it, anybody yeah. can do it. I'm like, yes, you were absolutely one hundred percent right. Come talk to me about it. Are you active in that community? Oh, Jesus. I, I'm not connected to anybody. I to, want you to know to that, that my, my recovery experience was very bad, very bad. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't the best scenario. It's like I knew a lot more about the situation I felt. Not in an egotistical way, but in literally a, you know, having 
you know, dealing with sex addiction, dealing with other severe drug addictions. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I, I used to huff paint because I thought if I killed enough brain cells, I'd be dumb enough for people to like me. Mm. That's heavy duty, man. <laughs> and I'd already overcome a lot. And I think by the Some... time I went to quit drinking, I was willing to, you know, it's like if your life is a goddamn shit show, Okay, and you're in jail and you're fucking up and you're fucking, you know, it's like dead bodies coming down a river. And instead of fucking trying to get a pole and poke the fucking bodies, walk up the goddamn river and figure out where they're coming from. And the further I got down my own rabbit hole was that alcohol was my uh, go-to antidepressant Mm -hmm. and that I was dealing with my mental illness. You're trying to quiet some shit, man. You know, quiet some demons. Well, and, you know, fuck my demons. I put chains on them and put them on treadmills. They're running my goddamn DC shit. <laughs> yeah. I got a 50-amp, 10,000-watt sine wave inverter over there, baby. I'm ready to start <laughs> civilization. <laughs> fuck yeah, dude. Well, but, dude, I, yeah. I, I want to uh, – what, what do you got coming up? With well, Landmark, anything um, that we can tell people about? Just check boogie? out the website, check or the Facebook. I do a lot of live streams. Okay. So if you're sitting around, man, and you play music or you enjoy live music and you want to rub up on that and get a little taste for it, just check it out. Yeah. I, you know, every night that I book somebody, Lord willing, and the creeks don't rise, and my crack top. <laughs> you ever had a crack top? Uh-uh. No, it's, that's a laptop that you got to buy in a Waffle House. <laughs> $200 and a half ounce of weed. <laughs> we'll get you a beast of a laptop. Anyway, anyway. A crack top. A crack top. <laughs> anyway. You know, creek, creek, you know, long, long, long as I got the ability, I try to do the live streams for a few reasons is that we are so undervalued and underexposed as artists in East Tennessee. And you can't tour right oh, now. Oh, Jesus, yeah. man. And so, you know, if nothing else, just record, archive, you know, this beautiful, that in the middle of this fucking godforsaken wasteland of plague and death and foreclosure mm-hmm. and, you know, fucking people smoking wasp spray and fucking <laughs> eating their scabs and shit because they couldn't find meth during the pandemic. And in the middle of all this horrid fucking evil bullshit, some of the most beautiful art is being made. And Albert Camus talked about this when he was in the trenches in Algeria. He was right, and he said, the truest art is created by he or she who is in chains. And... Uh, I think that time is now, that art is now, and fuck those chains. Fuck those chains in the face hole. You know, I'm going to break them. Uh, I'm tired. I'm tired, but I'm full of hope. You know? I love it, man. Happy you're here. And I'm glad that you sat down and chatted with me. Yeah, man. I really appreciate it a lot. Thank you for doing it. Yeah, man. And we'll do it again soon. The Lord willing in the creek stump, right? Take care, John. You too, brother. Woo! Man, I love that dude. Ah, thank you all for continuing to support this podcast with your Patreon subscriptions. Patreon.com forward slash South Scruffy. And uh, I would also, I would like to uh, uh, congratulate... Uh, Cruz Contreras, who just got married. 
uh, wearing his South of Scruffy t-shirt <laughs> on the altar. He looked great. So beat that, guys. Somebody go get married in your South of Scruffy t-shirt. You got a one-up cruise. Uh, that's next level guesthood right there. So thank you, Cruz. Uh, and congratulations to Molly and Cruz. And thank you guys for listening. Love you guys. Take care. Matt Honkinen. Play me out.